Hello, and welcome back to Pastoral Parsha. I'm Michelle Friedman. And I'm Rachel Yehuda. And we're both from Yeshivat Chovavei Torah Rabbinical School. And in each episode, we explore an aspect of psychology based on the Torah reading of the week. So today we're starting the middle book of the five books of the Bible. It's actually the shortest book, and it's called Vayikra, or Leviticus. And today we're going to talk about the first portion, which is chapters one through six. So when we were telling people about this project, so many people made jokes about this actual book, asking, what are you going to do when it comes to Vayikra? Because unlike the other books, there are virtually no stories, very few stories in this book. It follows the revelation at Sinai, and it's entirely legal. The book is a very detailed description of ritual practice, ritual sacrifices. It's all about this ancient way of ordering the world. And people were asking, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to find psychology here, Michelle? How are we going to find psychology? And I found so much psychology. I feel like this book is a deep dive into the dynamic unconscious. I feel it's all about a kind of primitive, and I'm saying primitive in a kind of raw, primordial encounter with the most kind of core aspects of our psychology. And what I mean to say is, I think that the book connects with a kind of spiritual seriousness that is kind of foreign to the modern world. I think Leviticus responds to human existence in a way with a force field that we moderns rarely allow ourselves to experience. What I mean to say, Leviticus is like written in primary process kind of language. So let me explain. What's primary process? What's primary process? Yeah, What's the secondary what process? I'm, I'm dying to hear. <laughs> okay. So this kind of goes back to my psychoanalytic training days. And primary process is the language of the unconscious. It's the language that little children use or psychotics use where contradictions can coexist, where time can be past, present, and future all mushed together. It's the language of dreams. It's the language of hallucinations. It's the language that we don't experience, generally speaking, in adulthood, unless we're hallucinating or psychotic, which is another kind of way of hallucinating. And the secondary process, what we mean by that is when we can order that kind of powerful, mythologic, language, imagery, feeling of the dynamic unconscious in ways that other people can understand, where we can make it ordered, like in great art, where you look at a Van Gogh painting and you know that the sky isn't green, but you understand what Van Gogh is talking about. Or you go to a play where it's really chaotic and kind of crazy, but you feel like you understand it because the artist has been able to render that incredibly powerful, primitive state into language that the audience can understand. So is the book of Leviticus about ordering your primitive state? That's exactly what it's about. Leviticus is about, and I quote here the title of Mary Douglas's famous book, written actually in 1999. She's a well-known anthropologist, Purity and Danger. What this book is all about is recognizing that the 
that the cosmos, that living in this world is a scary and dangerous kind of place that certainly ancients didn't understand, didn't know what was going on scientifically in terms of the cosmos, in terms of the body, in terms of why would the sun come up the next day, and that each experience was a kind of scary one. And the way to order that was to create a sense of, of order through separation. And that's what Leviticus does, that there are correlates between the cosmos and creation and the body, and there's a differential between the sacred and the profane, that by ordering, by making sacrifices from very specific animal parts, from creating taboos having to do with body fluids, with sexual experience, with body experience, with the food that we eat, with the people that we're allowed to have sexual relationships with, that is a way of creating order in the cosmos. I don't know, Michelle, what you're saying is a little hard to um, relate to in some way because a lot of the things that are written about in this book are just not relevant to um, today. So how do you take, for example, these big sections on sacrifices of animals? Like how, how can you think about it in terms of contemporary ideas of mindfulness or um, other kinds of practices that would, that would really help us deal with what the text is telling us about? Well, it's interesting that you chose mindfulness because what does mindfulness do? It has people sit still, try to focus on just anything that comes to mind and accept it for what it is. There's a pairing away of everything else. People who are doing mindfulness experiences are, are encouraged to not judge what they're thinking, to not plan, to not use the meditation time, for example, to um, reflect backwards or to plan forwards or to do any kind of creative activity. Just as in these texts, the instructions are highly specific and all-encompassing. Well, look, I mean, in this first um, Parsha, we're dealing a lot with different kinds of sacrifices that are brought up for different reasons. Right. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about slavery and how that can make us uncomfortable thinking about things that we just don't do these days and trying to at least learn something about the uh, Jewish practice from the way those laws were set aside. I think this, the same is true here. We have a task to do That's right. when we try to think about what it is these uh, different categories of sacrifices are trying to teach us about how to make order, how to use, um, how to make corrective action. And in this, and in this Parsha, the specific activity is sin offerings. How do we come back from different kinds of sin through animal sacrifice? So clearly animal sacrifice doesn't speak to moderns, to most moderns anyway, um, but coming back from sin certainly does. How do we, what kind of rituals do we do? What kind of activities do we do that help us feel that we have restored something? Well, I think one of the lessons is that sometimes when you do 
do something wrong, there isn't a natural way to make that right in the way of undoing it. And you have to actually go forward and do something else. So I'm thinking of some of the patients that we see at the VA that really suffer a lot because of things that happened in the war, not only things that happened to them, but things that they participated in. And there's really no way to undo those things. And I'm wondering if some of the practices here about sacrifice uh, resonate with a way to make things better. Yes, because what does a ritual do? Like if, if somebody, let's say, using your example of a veteran who is really suffering with a sense of guilt for activities that he or she committed, were to perform some kind of ritual, not a ritual that has some kind of, um, not even something that has some sort of, we would call social redemptive significance, but really a ritual. It's a way of separating, just like Vayikra does, between that past activity and that past self who was doing that activity and that self now. So okay. Michelle, what do you think we can do in contemporary life to sort of channel some of these primary and secondary processes that you've been describing for Vaikra? Well, I think first of all, it's most important to recognize that while we don't offer animal sacrifices in general, we as humans haven't changed that much. And we still have the same roaring id passions, the same huge floods of feeling and of turbulent dreams and scary thoughts and things that might be intrusive fantasies or seemingly, and I'm talking about highly functional people, and certainly I would include in this discussion as well people who are not highly functional or maybe psychiatrically ill, but we haven't changed as humans from the beginning of time. What has changed, at least in our profession, or what we can offer in our profession instead of animal sacrifices, <laughs> is the work of interpretation, is looking at the manifestations of these kinds of powerful, roaring, primary process feelings, visions, images, sensations, and to help people interpret them, to help people see what a dream might mean, what an intrusive thought might mean. I'll give you an example that's more domestic. A new mother, who is overwhelmed and scared, loves her baby, but finds the whole situation somewhat overwhelming and new, might have an intrusive thought about throwing that baby out the window. Now, obviously it needs to be checked whether or not that person has good, what we call reality testing, whether she knows that she shouldn't do that. But this is a kind of intrusive thought that a lot of women, after having a baby, might struggle with and feel terribly guilty and freaked out by thinking that they're some kind of disturbed person. But actually, what a therapist can help such a woman understand, that that's the expression of her fatigue, of her, of her worry that is she gonna be a good mother? Is she up to this job? And I'll close with the nursery rhyme, which is really so touching, that is a rockabye baby on the treetops when the wind blows the cradle will rock, when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, then will come baby, cradle and all. That's a pretty scary idea. Like, wow, the cradle's gonna come down and the, and the baby's gonna, what's gonna happen to the baby and the cradle coming down? And mothers have been singing this for millennia to their babies. And it's a kind of way of metabolizing that primary process aggressive feeling. And so that's, that's a, a lullaby 
that helps mitigate this kind of fierce and wild primary process experience. And that's hopefully what we can help people do in the office.